Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast. With service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Our same set of notes as we go forward. Check out the new website, hazardground.com. A lot of positive feedback on it. Hope you guys are really, really enjoying it. Click on that Contact Us tab and let us know what you think. We certainly appreciate the feedback. Also on the website, our partnership with Amazon. Scroll down to the bottom, click on that Amazon button, or click on the Sponsors tab. You'll see the Amazon button right there as well. Do all your normal Amazon shopping. Whatever you spend, we'll get a percentage of. We donate that right back to some of the amazing charities you've heard featured here on the Hazard Ground podcast. Follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Keep up what's going on with the show and continue to spread the word of the Hazard Ground as our audience grows. We know you guys are a big part of why this podcast is so successful. And we certainly appreciate all the love, but we appreciate you also spreading the word as well. Finally, keep the listener suggestions coming. We continue to get suggestions from listeners on stories that we're not aware of. So we certainly appreciate you guys pointing those out. And with that, let's get on to this week's episode. Joining us now is a retired Air Force Master Sergeant who spent 11 years in the Air Force. He had six deployments, was awarded three Purple Hearts. He also was awarded one of the highest awards in all of the military, the Air Force Cross. He was wounded twice on his deployments, one that eventually ended his career. He is also a Pat Tillman scholar. Here is Zach Reiner joining us on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Zach, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks a lot, Mark. Thanks for having me on the show. Uh, absolutely excited. We don't get a lot of Air Force guys, believe it or not. I mean, we, we've had some Air Force generals, but you know how they are. And that's no disrespect <laughs> to stars. They just, you know, they're generals. Um, but also, I'd like to add that you are also a combat controller. And for those who don't know, the the Navy has SEALs, the Army has Green Berets, and the Air Force has combat controllers. So you guys are a part of the special operations community, and you operate in that realm um, and you spent the better part of your career there. And obviously that was where you were awarded, um, the, the air force cross, but I want to actually, you know, dive into what it takes to be a combat controller. Cause we, again, we haven't had a lot of air force guys on before we get to that though. Let's start at the beginning. How did you get in the air force and why? Yeah. So I kind of had this, uh, childhood dream of growing up and, uh, and being in the military. You know, my grandfather served in world war two and I had an uncle that I was fairly close to that served in Vietnam. So it was kind of a part of my history, not necessarily, uh, you know, when my immediate family, but a generation or two removed. Um, and so I just always looked up to my grandfather. Um, you know, he would tell us stories about serving in the South Pacific, um, during world war two. And, um, you know, it was just something that I knew from a very young age that that was what I was going to do. And so I set my aspirations to join the military. And, you know, when that time came around, I knew that I wanted to work with the best people out there. And I um, decided to join special operations. Um, I didn't know exactly in what capacity that was going to be. Um, but the Air Force um, offered, you know, a pretty pretty awesome job in my mind, um, that of combat control. And so I, you know, once I was able to meet the requirements, I jumped at the opportunity. But, but I mean, can you enlist for that option when you did it? Was that available or is this something that yeah. you knew about? Yeah. So, it, um, you know, at the time there was only maybe 350 combat controllers in the air force. So, I mean, it was a super small career field, but, um, you know, I think at the time also the, the green berets were starting to offer the 18 x-ray program and I'm pretty sure that the SEALs still did not have a guaranteed enlistment option um, to go in. So you had to, you know, join the big Navy. But the Air Force offered a guaranteed enlistment into combat control, assuming that I made the uh, the requirements. And so, you know, I jumped at it. Now, you enlisted after 9-11. I mean, was any of that part of it or was it more? I know you talked about your family being in it. Was was that happening regardless because, you know, 9-11 happened while you were still a young kid. Um, but was it always in your head that you were going military 9-11 or not? Yeah, it was always in my head that I was going military. And I think, you know, 9-11 just kind of um, made it more concrete. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I was already going to 
going to join. And then, you know, I followed very closely throughout my high school um, politics and the news and what was going on in Iraq and Afghanistan. And so, you know, as much as I could be informed, I was on kind of what was going on. Um, and that just definitely, you know, made it made it more concrete. All right. Now, you're going to have to help me break some stereotypes here and, and forgive, you know, an army guy of 20 years for still not knowing much about the Air Force basic training and everything else. Yeah. Um, you know, because it's just a different world, right? I mean, hey, we joke about it all the time, but you guys get extra money for having to stay in army barracks. It's like, you know, this is a, a, a different world. So what would, what would so you- I, I haven't seen any of that money and I love oh, the okay. army a lot. <laughs> <laughs> um. So take me through Air Force basic training. What's it like? Yeah, so it was six weeks. Um, oh, that's it? I think now I think now they've changed it. But yeah, at the time, I, I believe it was six weeks. It was, you know, your standard marching around, um, you know, folding your shirts real nice type of thing. Um, so, you know, definitely wasn't challenging in my mind. Um, you know, certain parts were, but it, it wasn't the field experience that you get in the Army or in the Marine Corps. You know, and that's weird because you know it, it seems counterintuitive. They're going to set you up to be this special operations guy, and they're not pushing you to the limit physically in any size, way, shape, or form. So I think they recognize that shortfall, and since then they actually have specialized BMT units, basic military training units, where they take um, the guys that are going into the battlefield airmen jobs, and uh, you know they they start them from day one in the Air Force on a different kind of path. Gotcha. Okay. So you finish basic with probably no issues and everything else. Um, and, and how quickly do you start your, your combat controller training? Yeah. So it starts right after basic. Okay. You go down um, and you do a, a brief, it's a selection and orientation course, um, you know, just to kind of weed out the guys who don't want to be there um, that maybe just, you know, weren't well educated on what they were getting into. So you, you make it through that and then you start the combat control pipeline. And that whole process is about two and a half years start to finish. Really? Yeah. All right. So when you start the actual training itself, I mean, I know what Green Berets go through. I know what SEALs go through. Uh, is there like a hell week? Is there like a, you know, indoctrination? Yeah, so, go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. So that doesn't come on, come on until you're about a year into the program because you have to go through a bunch of other schools to the lead up. Um, so the selection and orientation is definitely, you know, a kick in the nuts a little bit. But um, it, the hardest parts kind of come later on um, for combat control. Pararescue has INDOC, and they kind of get the water piece right up front in the beginning of their training. Um, and with combat control, it's a, it's a lot of um, introduction to things, like leading up to, um, to where you're going to meet those same graduation standards uh, that, that PJs and SEALs and Green Berets are going to have to face, like whether it's in the water or running or whatever. Um, but with, with combat control, you have to go through some pretty hard academic stuff and by design, um, you know, they have to pick the people that, that can academically do the, do the career, um, because it is, it is kind of difficult. You have to go through air traffic control school, um, the same air traffic control school that the air force sends all of uh, their future controllers. And then, um, you know, you go to airborne school, you go to survival school, and then you go to combat control school where you're putting kind of all those things to to the test in the field where you're landing airplanes in the dirt and jumping out of airplanes, setting up runways um, and things of that nature. Um, and within combat control school, you have um, like a stress inoculation week. So it's like 96 hours of, uh, of no sleep or very, very little sleep, um, you know under field conditions, um, in the hot North Carolina sun. So that's, that's a good, good time. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like it. Um, let me ask you, what's the difference between a combat controller and a pararescue jumper? You mentioned the word PJ before we've actually had a couple of PJs. I know what they do, but I just not sure what a combat controller does. That's so much different. Yeah, so most of the STSs, Special Tactics Squadrons, have us working together. And typically, the Air Force doesn't do a whole lot of unilateral operations. Usually, we attach to other Special Operations Forces. So with PJs, they focus on the technical and tactical rescue. 
and combat controllers focus on that air to ground liaison. So anything that flies, drops bombs, whatever, um, you know, we're communicating that with the ground force commander. Okay. All right. So when do you get to, um, and give me your first kind of reaction to the real combat controller training that you hit. That's a year into this whole thing. Yeah. So, I mean, it was, uh, it was intense to say the least. So that you start that first week and that's, you know, the equivalent of, of a hell week, I guess. Um, it's, uh, it's just constant, you know, stress and physical activity and no sleep and doing, you know, building a bunch of defensive fighting positions, <laughs> just playing with a shovel, uh, keep you busy. Um, and it was, uh, it wasn't eye opening because you've been you've experienced this through that whole first year. To say the, f- the whole first year is laid back um, is is not doing it justice. You know you're you've been you've been beat up pretty good getting up to this point, and you know this is the um, beret awarding school that you have to pass before you go down to advanced skills training down in Florida. So uh, you know it's it's pretty intense to say the least. What sticks out the most about it to you? Uh, being so dehydrated and muscle cramped that my fingers would cramp into these locked positions where I'd have to use like my other fingers to pry them open. Really? Yeah. Wow. I mean, is it sleep deprivation and hunger as well and everything else? Uh, so you get, you get to eat pretty well. I think it's like a one MRE a, a day maybe for that stress inoculation training. So you're eating a decent amount, but, um, yeah, it's the it's the sleep depth and it's just the constant on the go, you know, getting tasked with different objectives um, and putting, you know, a lot of uh, the big emphasis is on teamwork, um, you know, where you're you're not an individual um, and, and everyone's working together towards a common goal. But you're going through it with a small team. Like, I think from uh, the start point at day one of, uh, of when I started the training, we had 35 and by combat control school, we only had eight people, but all, uh, the eight people that went through the, the school, we all graduated. Um, and it, you know, we, we were pretty close at that point. I asked this a lot of seals and special ops guys when they go through their training. Um, what was harder for you, the physical aspect or the mental aspect? Uh, I think the water puts both of that, um, into, into a combination. So after you pass combat control school, you go down to advanced skills training and that's when you go through a pre scuba phase before you go to combat diver. And I think the water definitely breaks you mentally and physically because not only are you having to do a task, um, but you're also having to do it under extreme situations like you know, holding your breath and having, you know, no air. So, uh, you know, if you're able to hold your breath until you can pass out, then that kind of shows that you have the mental fortitude to do just about anything. Yeah, that doesn't work for me. Um, (laughs) It's funny, you know, this sounds like a stupid exercise, but I'm sure everybody, um, and considering now that it's summertime, may get the opportunity to try it. But, you know, you talk to all the SEALs and and special ops guys who, who have to do this stuff underwater, and you just kind of test yourself. You know, I'll be in the pool with my kids and I'll just go underwater and just see how long I could sit there, right? Without doing yeah. anything. And kind of, and I don't, have, I'm, I don't I'm not looking at a watch. I'm not timing myself. None of that's going on. But I'm just sitting here wondering, okay. And then as I'm sitting there, I'm starting to think to myself, could I get my clothes off right now? Could I unlock my hands if they were tied to something? Could I swim from point A to point B without having my heart start racing through my head in, in a zero stress situation? And you start to realize how tough it is. You know, like yeah, you start to is. you start to grasp, like, man, this, you know, water is scary, bro. <laughs> yeah, it's not fun. Um, it, uh, you know, I, I think it is a great equalizer and a great selection tool in special operations. Anything that involves water, because because it takes a certain individual to overcome, you know, that that need that basic human need for air and to be able to turn that off or put that in the back of your mind to complete the mission. Um, whether that mission is tying knots or recovering your mask and snorkel or whatever. Um, you know, I think that's, uh, it's just a pretty powerful piece. Okay. So, uh, you, you graduate from this two and a half year process. Um, you know, what are you thinking and feeling? How proud of you, how proud of yourself are you? And, you know, you're kind of reached a goal that you'd set out to do from, from day one. 
Yeah. So, I, I mean, I'm definitely proud of my accomplishments um, at that point, but there's still a long ways to go. So once you show up on team, um, you know, at the time there's, there's not a whole lot of need for airfield operations in Afghanistan. So the push sure. is then to get your JTAC rating. So joint terminal attack control, and that allows you to release bombs from aircraft, um, you know, in, in the interest of the ground force commander. That sounds so, like fun. Yeah. So immediately, like I'm already, you know, I show up to the squadron and then the push is to get my JTAC upgrade. So I'm working towards that and I'm working towards, you know, getting signed off on on various other um, things so that I can be a seven level combat controller, which basically means that you can run an airfield if need be um, without supervision. Um, and so like there's the training never ends, I guess you can say. Um, so there's a little bit of time to, you know, appreciate and reflect on the past two and a half years and say, you know, wow, that was, that was an accomplishment, but you're already looking forward to the next thing. I mean, is, is the JTAC thing kind of like the ability to call for fire in the army? Is that what it is? Yeah, except except you can also um, release from a fixed wing aircraft. So we can call in artillery, we can call in um, 500 pound bombs, we can call in um, guns from a, um, a battleship. Um, I mean, you name it, anything that releases ordnance, we can call it in. Really? Like, do do you are you actually the person pushing the button saying go? Uh, I'm the one communicating it. Okay. All. So yeah. I'm on the ground running around um, with the ground force commander or with you know, the start major on the ground, whoever that might be and who's ever making those kind of tactical decisions. And, uh, you know, when, when we decide that the fire that we're taking is not something that we can, um, neutralize organically, then we will use other means like a 500 pound bomb or a 2000 pound bomb, give me, missile, whatever. Give me the, the call to response time kind of deal. You're sitting there with the sergeant major and the commander, and, and they, they have these guys at this, this point on this hill, whatever it is in Afghanistan, and they see that the enemy is too much, and they say, we need air support now. You do yeah, what, so and how quickly does the bomb get on the ground? That's really dependent on a lot of factors. Okay. So depending on the mission type, um, you usually will have aircraft overhead already. Right. Um, so, and that's all very dependent because, you know, on my, on my first deployment, that was typically the case because I was running around with the commandos, um, the Afghan commandos. And so they were normally pretty high level operations going after some pretty valuable targets. And on my next rotation, I was in, um, Afghanistan as well, but it was more or less drive around, make contact and then call in for, for air support if it was too much, uh, of, you know, the, the enemy response. So in those situations, you know, it might take 30 minutes before an aircraft shows up. Wow. And then once that's a long time, Zach. Yeah, absolutely. And it might be, you know, a coalition aircraft. So you're having to work through some communication barriers um, and just kind of understanding, you know, getting them abreast of the ground situation, where friendlies are and where the target is and, you know, ensuring that they're talked onto the right target. Um, so that might take, you know, 45 minutes, maybe even an hour before oh, you get a bomb no. off the bird. Like, it's all very dependent. Um, when you have that's got to be agonizing, though. I'm sorry to cut you off, but that's got to like, I mean, we've talked to so many guys who have been in combat, and, you know, and you ask them, how long did it last? And they say, it felt like five hours, but I think it was only like 25 minutes. You know, like, it, yeah. it, because, because everything is so hectic, it feels like it goes on and on and on. 30 minutes in combat is a long time to keep yourself alive when you are on the wrong side of a numbers game. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, that's just kind of the nature of the beast that, that special forces kind of take on is, you know, they're, they act as a force multiplier. And so they're used to running around in 12 man teams or 13 man, if you count the, the air force attachment, that's typically with them. And so, uh, you know, it's, they're very capable fighters, uh, to, to say it lightly, like those guys are, uh, incredible. Um, and so they're, they're able to deal a lot of damage, um, with, with what they have, um, with their small numbers. Whew, you know, that Air Force piece is kind of the break break glass in case of emergency. Which, right. You know, so if if but if they have guns over if they have air overhead air cover uh, going into a mission, I mean, are we talking yeah. literally minutes? 
Yeah, you're talking minutes, sometimes even, you know, within 30 seconds, That's you awesome. can have rounds <laughs> down. Like, it all depends on, like, how much coordination had gone in prior to. And if you have dedicated air assets, a lot of times you'll brief with them before you step on a mission. And so they're already knowing exactly where you're infilling, where friendlies are going to be once you're on the ground. And so they're just uh, up, you know, spun up on the situation much better. Now, I got one more before we start going back to your, your personal story. Are you ever in awe of how quickly and how much might we can put on the battlefield? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you look at what air power can do in Afghanistan is maybe the biggest success story of that. You know, And it never gets talked about, though, Zach. That never gets talked about. Like the amount of yeah. air power that we put to, put in Afghanistan, you almost never hear. You hear about the bombing in Tora Bora, right? That's about it. But you don't ever really kind of get a full sense of how much work that they did. Yeah, I think sometimes that gets lost on, uh, you know, when you're talking about ground combat, like, you know, there's incredible heroics and everything else. But then there's also like very rarely are people doing missions, you know, where it is a bad situation and they're not calling for some sort of fire support because we're usually always at the at the smaller end of the numbers game when we're fighting the Taliban. OK, all right, let's get back to you. Um, so you finish your schooling. What month, what year is this and how quickly do you get to your first deployment? So that would have been like January 2007 that I showed up at the 21st Special Tactics Squadron at uh, Pope Air Force Base at the time. And by January 2008, I was pushing out the door for my first rotation to Afghanistan. All right. Um, And on that first rotation of of your 11 deployments. Oh, by the way, are these are these typically the shorter Air Force deployments, four to six months and you're done? Or is it more of the the spec ops, you know, seven, eight month rotation and you're out? Uh, so it, de- it depends. So with, with my first unit, the 21st SCS, uh, they were typically a six month rotation. Okay. All right. And I was just curious based off of, uh, of the uh, amount of how you got 11 in, in a, in a fairly short amount of time. And obviously I knew they weren't year long deployments. Otherwise you would have never been home. Um, that was but- 11 years of service time and six deployments. Yes. Okay. Right. So, um, Let's get to April 6, 2008. You're on that first deployment. You're in Afghanistan. Um, tell me about that day. Um, do you wake up? Is it a normal day? Uh, give me the kind of... Uh, uh... Yeah, so that day was, um, man, it was a, a mission that was a long time coming. Okay. Um, so we had we had kind of planned it for maybe a month prior, and uh, we're just kind of like waiting for... Maybe not that long. Maybe it was like two weeks prior and we were looking for our window for execution. But, um, you know, we had dedicated air assets like we had planned with them. We had briefed them all up. Um, The plan was awful. It was to attack an objective uphill. Um, And I don't think anyone was real happy with that. But for whatever reason, the powers that be decided that, you know, we were going to we were going to take that on. I think some of that might have been um, an overselling of the capabilities of our Afghan counterparts. Like they were still kind of in their infancy. And I, I don't know that they were capable um, at that point of taking on a target like that. Um, you know, you, you could put a hundred Americans on the ground and attack uphill. That's just a terrible tactical situation to be in. Um, you know, I think history has taught us a lot of lessons about attacking uphill, and this yeah. is just another example. Uh, please don't tell um, me you were doing this during the day. Yeah, so that was okay. Another, so there's uh, there's no. So now we're going over two at this point in time and breaking every single like tactical protocol we have. Let's lose exactly. the geographical advantage. Let's lose the the technological advantage by doing this in the middle of the day. Okay, keep going. So uh, uh, this was a, a great command decision. Not. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> so it, the target itself was at like 8,000 feet elevation. Um, and uh, we were, you know, where we were seeing, like we weren't experiencing the same kind of weather that they had on the target. Like we knew that there was going to be snow on the ground, um, but we didn't, we didn't anticipate the river runoff to be as much as it was. So what looked like a little stream turned into a pretty fast moving river that we had to navigate through ice-covered rock. And so, wait, snow. you're you're, you're not um, being dropped in at eight thousand feet. You're climbing. No, so we are offloading helos. Okay. Um, to do, yeah. So it was a helo assault. Okay. And um, I was going to say, you know, do more. Had, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
but you know, they put us right in the bottom of the Valley and we had, to, you know, climb maybe, maybe 150 feet to get to the, maybe 200 feet to get to the top of where the actual objective was. And I mean, by that point, the gig was up and, uh, you know, there was kind of a lot of moving pieces going on and different assets were assigned to different air assets were assigned to different components of the mission force. So there was another target that was maybe a kilometer to the north. And the plan was that um, that team was going to have the 64s, uh, the H-64 attack helicopters assigned to them because they were going in with, with very few numbers. And we would have the fast movers overhead initially. And then, you know, we would flex as needed. So, you know, you can kind of see in the online HUD footage, like you see um, from the 64s, you see about 40 guys on one rooftop. And then as we infill, they just kind of disperse and go to their fighting positions. And that's a, you know, that's a scary thing. And in hindsight, like that information should have been relayed to us. But unfortunately, because of how we had the assets allocated, um, it didn't, it didn't get put down to us, um, until later on. So wait, you had no and idea so, this concurrent mission was going on? No, we did. So okay. they were part of, part of our force, but we ran different radio nets because, you know, one, oh, okay. one combat controller typically has a call for fire net. And so rather than competing for each other to get mic time, um, you know, they, they ran a different net on uh, their, their objective, which was about a kilometer, um, okay. from where we were. Well, and, and just let me clarify. And for those not military listening, the confusion is with that. If there is an aircraft coming overhead, you may think it's coming for you, but it's really going for another target. And there's that kind of gap in communication, correct? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, we weren't line of sight with that other team, so we didn't have direct communications with them, but it could be relayed through the aircraft. And, you know, there was just that confusion initially because we were just looking for how do we, you know, now that we're on the ground, how do we get up this, up this mountain to attack basically, you know, I don't know if you've seen pictures of it, but it looks like a castle built into the side of a hill. Um, it's, you know, the type of, uh, buildings where you know the, the roof of one building is the floor of the next building and they're just oh, built okay. right on you know right on those terraces mm -hmm. as they go up and so uh you know it's just a very you know and those buildings are made out of you know that that sun brick whatever mud brick houses that they have that are uh, it's pretty, almost like thick cement yeah <laughs> yeah i mean they're they're pretty resilient structures um at least know, to, at least to standard gunfire right yeah i mean yeah absolutely okay so you're so, cl you're climbing up the side of this mountain here um when you get to the objective what happens or does something happen before you actually get there yeah so we made it about halfway up the mountain when uh you know we just got completely ambushed from every direction um and uh we took um a casualty um, almost immediately. Uh, the interpreter was killed, and then we took additional casualties um, from the team itself, where they were non-ambulatory, and some of them were pretty significant. And so there was about six of us, maybe in that um, initial headquarters package, that were taking taking the brunt of the fire, and we effectively got pinned down um, in our location with casualties that we couldn't move. And it's from, you know, this basically 60 feet up the mountain uh, cliffside where we fought the majority of the battle um, that, that kind of ensued as, as the day went on. So what happens to you? What are you seeing? What is your job at this point in time? Yeah, so I actually got shot in the left leg during kind of the initial volley. Um, it wasn't serious, so I'm, I'm pretty thankful for that. But it's pretty clear that these guys were um, experienced fighters and well-trained. You know, they were taking headshots with, with the one um, with our interpreter, CK, who uh, got shot in the head and was not wearing a helmet. So that's, you know, kind of just to give you kind of proximity of like where they were. I mean, they were close enough to recognize that. And then the other casualties were either um, limb shots and groin shots. So, um, you know, these were, these were well-trained guys who weren't shooting, you know, center of mass trying to take us down. They were, you know, they knew our capabilities of our body armor and uh, you know, they were taking well-aimed, 
um, and effective, effectively um, halting our movement by, you know, making non-ambulatory casualties. Yeah, and that's, again, for the non-military, I'm sorry to interrupt, but for the non-military folks listening, you wear, you know, body armor plates on the front and the back that would resist the, would, an AK-47 is a standard weapon that the Afghans carried. It would resist that bullet. So as Zach just mentioned, they wisely shoot at your limbs. One, because um, it's going to hit pure flesh. And two, it's going to slow your movement. And they know that we won't leave somebody sitting there on the battlefield bleeding. We're going to take them with us. So if they shoot somebody in the leg who can't move, another guy's got to come and pick them up and carry them and essentially start creating bottleneck type situation and, and clogs and, and just slow down the movement to a point where you can get them all in a consolidated area. Go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, with, with some of the other gunfights that I've been in, you know, you don't see that level of precision that I saw on that mission, um, which is, you know, which just kind of leads me to believe that these were well-trained and, you know, the guy that we were targeting um, had, had a response, you know, a very capable fighting force that he was in charge of. So as you're shot in the leg, are you able to move? Where are you in relation to the target building? Yeah. So in relation to the target building, we are still probably 40 to 50 feet below it on the side of a cliff. And uh, like I said, like we had taken um, a number of casualties. And so like we weren't, we weren't able to go anywhere at that point and we were effectively pinned down. And when I mean effectively, I mean like rounds were still coming in as we were, you know, face flat on the ground. Um, you know, you popped up ahead and, and it probably would have gotten shot. Um, so we found what little bit of cover we could and kind of rode this thing out. Like we were, you know, returning fire, um, and calling in airstrikes at this point. So, but how, how can we, you see, how, how can you know, explain to me how you know where to call in the fire? Are you just sending a grid coordinate and that's it? And the aircrafts can see the building or how precise are we talking about here? So basically how we're controlling this is I'm, I'm able to see, you know, where some targets are, are at. And so I'm able to relay those locations to the aircraft. And other times the aircraft is seeing fighters and they're relaying that information to me. So, and based on the rules um, for air support, as long as I can see the aircraft or the target, then I would have been good. Um, And, and if you're going to do a type one control for close air support and granted, like some of my stuff is, is dated now I've been out for a number of years, but um you know, if you can see for, for type one, you have to be able to see the aircraft and the target. Um, and that's typically the type of control that you would want in such close proximity. But some of these targets, it just wasn't possible to see the target based on where we were at um, on, on that cliff side. And, uh, you know, I should point out, too, that there was another team in the valley um, that were also with us, um, but were not yet on the cliff side to make it up there. Um, so there was another combat controller with them who was also passing targeting information to the aircraft and controlling, um, you know, an, an amount of, uh, or a number of bombs and, and strikes. Incredible so synchronization, was, man. That's unreal. Yeah. Yeah. So it's something that we pride ourselves on is how we, we can, are able to work together and, uh, and, you know, make sure that we're, we're getting effective rounds down, um, as fast and safe as possible. All right, so how long are you guys pinned on the side of this mountain? So I want to say we were pinned for maybe three and a half of the of the six and a half hours wow. of, of the fight, um, and it wasn't until we put down a significant amount of fire. How many how many um, attack runs are we talking about? How many runs? How many how many airstrikes you calling in? Uh, I think according to my citation, there was over fifty fifty attack runs. Um, now, just put this in context for me, so. Let's say, uh, what do you have overhead aircraft-wise? Two, maybe three tops, right? So we had we had a good amount. We had, um, I want to say, at any given time, we had at a minimum two AH-64s, um, two F-15s, and a Pred that was overhead. Okay, so, so the only reason I'm asking this, and I'm sorry to cut you off again, but I just want to kind of go through this chronologically before you give away too much so that the audience can understand. 
when you call in for a run, and let's just say you call the F-15, and the F-15 makes their run, how long will it take for them to get back in position to make a second run, that particular yeah, aircraft? Yeah, that depends on a lot of factors. So it depends on where they're at in their orbit um, in relation to the target itself. Right, because it's not so, like they're just sitting there waiting, right? It's not a static exactly. vehicle so, parked. It's so got to keep moving. They're kind of overhead, um, and you know they might be offset or however, wherever we want to set them up. Are they just but, circling? Um, is that what they're doing, or is there a pattern that they're flying in? Yeah, I don't want to go into too much of okay, the that's specifics fine. on like what they're doing, but yeah, typically they're they're in some sort of a wheel. Um, overhead. Gotcha. Okay. And, um, you know, they're, they're up there and it just depends on where they're at in that wheel and, um, where the target is and where friendlies are. Um, you know, cause it might take another minute or so to get around to where they have to, to where the, the best angle of attack is going to be for them. Um, where at, you know, other times they might be in prime position and they can be in immediately. So right. it all just kind of depends. There's a lot of factors. That, can, can you give you me know, an when average? You're, when you're trying to talk to, um, man, I, I really can't because okay. there's so much that goes on. Um, you know, you might have difficulty relaying exactly which building number you're talking about. Mm-hmm. So you might ask them to put down a mark or you might have to mark it. Um, so it's, uh, it, I mean, I could give you. I'll try. I'll try one more time to phrase it this way. Under most ideal circumstances, they can they they can make run one and then run two. How quickly? Under most ideal circumstances, if everything goes exactly the way you want it to, Uh, I would say maybe five minutes. Okay, so varying from five minutes to anywhere beyond, and let's just. And obviously, in the nature of combat, as we know, nothing is ideal. It might be fortunate, yeah, but it's not ideal. ideal. And, and, you know, having different assets is in our benefit because if an F-15 decides to put down a 500-pounder, you know, you have to move the H-64s out of the way so they're, they're not taking frag from that bomb in their pattern because they're obviously flying much lower. Sure. Um, but then they can be in, you know, with a, with a gun run um, almost immediately following that. So. Yeah. You know, you're kind of synchronizing air assets and, uh, you know, going with which weapon is most capable for the target. And the long way around why I was doing this whole thing, I'm just trying to get 50 runs in three and a half hours to get everybody the scope of one, how quickly the volley of fire was coming at you that you needed that response. And two, kind of how, you know, high precision and how well these aircraft, both helicopter and and, uh, and and other aircrafts are able to perform under duress. Uh, it's 50 runs, I, I would get, gather and say, is a hell of a lot in that three-and-a-half-hour period. Yeah, so, you know, that was the three-and-a-half is like while we were pinned down. So right. it was like six-and-a-half was the total. But the most of the volume of fire, you know, probably occurred in that three-and-a-half hours. And, yeah, it was constant. It was, you know, if it wasn't me talking on the radio, it was Rob Gutierrez talking on the radio. And uh, we were making that happen just nonstop, constantly, you know, calling in airstrikes. Um, How close are these airstrikes landing to not only your position, but position of your teammates? Yeah, very. Um, so uh, <laughs> um, it's kind of funny. There's uh well, I don't know. I guess it's kind of funny now. You know, we made it out. So, um, you know, you you can. You can hear in the there's a YouTube video of some of this the Shock Valley um, uh, feed, and you can hear the pilot say after he releases one of the bombs, like "Ooh, I did not feel good about that one." Um, so that's just a kind of you know give you an idea about how close it was. Um, so there was many that were in 100 meters, um, and you know for a 500 pound bomb. Um, I forget what the statistics are. It used to be 185. I don't know what they are now for like danger close. Um, but yeah, well within that danger close range where friendlies are at risk of, of taking some of the, some of the blast. And, uh, you know, we put a 2000 pound bomb down, um, essentially on top of us because of, uh, the way that the terrain was, um, so it was a building that was very close to where our cliffside, um, position was, but it was maybe about, you know, another 50 feet up. 
and uh, slightly offset from our location. But we put that bomb down and, you know, we had one of the commandos break their leg from uh, a piece of debris crushing it. Um, So that's that's how close it was. I mean, we were getting showered with debris from the buildings um, and, uh, you know, it it was very close. I mean, take me through the emotions of this when you're you're pinned down and the enemy's got you in a bad position and you know that if you stay here in a matter of time you know you guys are all going to be killed and then you know you hear the aircraft's coming you see the bombs landing and and shrapnel's landing on you but you know the alternative of the shrapnel landing on you is it's better than an enemy bullet through my skull so yeah absolutely you and know, you know we were still there w- there was no possible way that we could move um because there was i believe three non-ambulatory wounded then at our location so and so that left you know three pseudo healthy guys to try and get them off the cliffside so it just wasn't going to happen so we didn't have another choice so obviously there's frustrations between like you know why can't I get the aircraft in here quicker? And, you know, it's just that, you know, there's, there's a lot that's going on and, you know, there's, there's a a little bit of a helmet fire between all the coordination pieces, but also like just the closeness of the enemy positions to where we're at. Um, You know, it, it did not seem like the appropriate time to rush something. If anything, that's when you want to make sure that everything is very, um, very much okay before you give the the cleared hot call. I, I know me. I, I, again, I'm not tied into the Air Force, but the, the times that I was in combat, I, I felt like if I saw an aircraft come overhead and just lay some ordnance on the position that I was fighting on, I, I'm sitting there smiling from here going, thanks, fellas. Like, you know, what a relief. Are you feeling relief? I mean, you you're, you're calling it, so you know it's coming. Um, so I don't know if it's different for you, but I can imagine the, the other Army, you know, Special Forces counterparts were, were ecstatic the fact that you guys were there. So, yeah, I think so. I mean, definitely after the fact, I think during the fact it's, you know, hey, we need to get this fire to stop because we had put down a significant amount of ordnance and we were still getting shot effectively. And so, like, there was absolutely some frustration between, like, how do we, you know, get the rest of these targets taken out um, before we all end up dead here in this position. Um, so, you know, that they can never, the, the bombs can never come fast enough in times like that. Were you, did you think you were going to die? Were you really scared? Uh, you know, like I, I honestly, and I, I honestly didn't think about it much. Like there was so much going on um, with, with coordination stuff that like, um, it was kind of like my own security blanket where it was kind of surreal that we were getting shot at so effectively because, you know, there was nothing that I could do about the getting shot at immediately. It was, I have to go through another asset to get them to drop a bomb to make that fire shot, uh, to make that fire stop. And so I was so engaged with that kind of stuff that I didn't, I, I honestly didn't really think about the graveness of the situation until later. Did you ever think about how my leg hurts because there's a bullet in it? So I didn't even know that I had been shot until <laughs> after we had gotten off of that. Oh, um, really? That cliffside. Yeah, I, I, we came down the cliffside. I had done a mag exchange in the middle of all this, and I saw, you know, I was like, oh, that looks weird. That's not going to go in my gun. So I put it in my drop pouch, and then I get down the mountain, and, you know, um, one of the guys pointed out, he's like, hey, you got to – you got a hole in your pants. Uh, I think you're shot. You're bleeding. <laughs> I'm like, Oh yeah, sure enough. Um, so uh, adrenaline is yeah, a great so, thing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is a great thing. But uh, yeah, that magazine, I ended up pulling it out and taking a look at it and I had taken a round right through the magazine. So um, it's, you know, just one of those crazy things that, you did, know, fortunate to have the gear that we have. Did to, you save uh, the magazine? The bullets away. I do, yeah, I have. You it. still got it? That's awesome. Yeah, where is it? Uh, it's hanging up in my "I Love Me" war room. <laughs> <laughs> so, how ultimately do you get off the side of the mountain? I mean, is it get to a point where the the air superiority overpowers the enemy, and you're able to just walk down? Yeah, that's exactly kind of what happened. So, after we put down that two thousand pound bomb, um, there was kind of a lull in the fighting, and we took advantage of that and. 
some of the guys that were in the valley were able to make it up to our position and we were able to start moving the wounded guys off the cliff side. Um, and you know, that took, that took a while to, to get all the, all the guys off of there. Um, and it was, um, yeah, it was, it was intense, like trying to, you know, move guys that, that can't walk and, you know, one's essentially missing a limb. Um, he, uh, he took a round below the knee and ended up like securing his mangled appendage with his bootstraps, just tied it onto his thigh um, and uh, was able to use his, his rifle as a crutch and, and kind oh, of make it wow. down the mountain. I mean, it's just, yes, if, if you get a chance, you should read up on all the Silver Star citations because there was a lot of them and uh, just absolute heroics from the team. For your efforts, you end up being awarded uh, the Air Force Cross, as we talked about. Um, tell me about when you find out that this is happening. Um, I think, I, well, I know I was out at a, um, doing a training mission, um, and yeah, I, I, I didn't really know that I had been submitted for an award, and um, they, uh, my commander told me, and, you know, and, yeah. That's just kind of how it went down. But I mean, I mean, are you shocked? Are you surprised? Are you happy? Like, what, what are you thinking and feeling? Uh, so at the time, there was no living recipient for the Air Force Cross, and so yeah, I mean, I was incredibly shocked, um, humbled, and you know, I definitely didn't feel like I deserved it. Um, you know, it was, I think, just the product of being in a in a bad place and being able to perform my job. Um, that uh that earned it what was the ceremony like uh so it was pretty big they had it at pope it was um in this big open hangar um they had the secretary of the air force and the chief of staff of the air force there and teammates and some of the members of the team uh the special forces team came and um it was a good event when were you awarded the air force cross that was uh 2009 i believe Okay. Uh, I mean, I, I just didn't know how quickly it came after um, your actual. Yeah. In, in terms of metals, it actually happened fairly quickly. That's what, yeah, that's know, what I some thought. Of those can take a very long time. Okay. Um, and the only re- other reason I asked that is because obviously that was your first deployment. Uh, you had a whole bunch more after the fact. Um, and you're walking around, you know, wearing this extremely prestigious high honor of the Air Force. Um, I don't know how to phrase this question without making it sound pompous, but I mean, did people know of your story? Did other folks know about it? I mean, when you went on to other deployments, are they like, Oh, you're the air force cross guy. Uh, yeah. And a lot of times that was, uh, (laughs) done in a joking manner and it was great. You know, um, being in a community like soft, like there's, I mean, there's tons of valor awards. Yes. So, um, people, people are going to make light of it. Um, and it was, it was fine with me, but, um, you know, like I think they hung up my picture in the bathroom with like a, um, one of those key targets on it that you hit in the urinal. <laughs> <laughs> That's well done. So yeah, there's a, you're never able to, uh, to really appreciate what you did and the guys keep you humble for sure. You know, to call your career cyclical um, would be an understatement. That was your first deployment. Unfortunately, on your last deployment, you get wounded again. Uh, but this one ultimately ends your career. What happens? Yeah. So um, there was also that 2009 deployment where I was um, in an IED blast, but I lost my team leader, Captain John Tinsley. So I, I, I just like to, you know, no, absolutely. Thank John for his service. And, and where and, were you, you when know, that happened? So that was in uh, Aruzgan province, Southern Afghanistan. Okay. Um, it was Firebase Cobra at the time and they renamed it, um, Tinsley. Um, but yeah, um, bad spot. Uh, Mark Forster was actually killed there. Sean Meadows lost his legs there. Um, and I can't tell you how many number of SF guys, um, were killed and wounded out of that firebase. So, um, yeah, just, uh, one of those, one of those firebases that always, always found, uh, somehow, you know, had, had action no matter, no matter what was going on with the rest of the country. But, um, so 2012 or 2013, 
Yeah, it was March of 2013 was um, when I was on my last appointment. And uh, I was with a different unit um, doing some different stuff, but I was part of a vehicle interdiction force. And so we would go target guys as they made, you know, their kind of daily business moves throughout the day, high, high level guys. And um, we um, were tracking this guy for a while, ended up uh, finding out, you know, developing kind of pattern of life and seeing like when he kind of did his business. And so we decided to target him. And during the flight to go interdict him, um, it ended up being um, six motorcycles and two guys on each motorcycle. So there was about 12 guys that um, that he or 11 other guys that he was traveling with the guy that we were targeting. So we ended up losing track of them um, in in the chaos of flying over there and uh, ended up flying right over the top of them. So they knew that they were being targeted. So we went and sat down for a little while, uh, kind of let things cool off, and then went to infill on them a second time. And they opened up from their motorcycles um, onto the aircraft. I actually shot the aircraft up pretty good. Um, one of the birds that um, I had overhead for, for fire support had lost two of its three radios. And so, you know, I'm jumping off the helicopter and trying to make communications. And, you know, when you're a communicator and you can't make comms, that's not a good position to be in. <laughs> right. So I'm like, oh, man, I'm the worst combat controller ever. I'm going to lose my job. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it ended up um, we chased down like three of the of the guys were remaining and we kind of chased them down to a bit of a deflate that they had gotten in. And one of the guys did, you know, one of those last second sprays and I caught one in the hip. So the bullet hit my femoral neck and then it, it shattered that and then it severed my sciatic nerve. Oh man. So it was uh painful. You know, it was, it was a game ender. <laughs> How much pain are you in? Uh, you know, I, I got shot and I knew I'd gotten shot. Um, yeah, this time you actually I, knew, right? Yeah, I definitely knew I got shot. <laughs> and so uh, I tried to immediately like try to get get to some cover. And I remember trying to like put use my leg and take a step. And with my nerve injury, like there, you know, was no um, I had complete paralysis instantly um, below below my right knee. So to use a I term they understand, there was no communication between your brain and the bottom of your leg. Very true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, I tried to take that step and just kind of collapse. And uh, I remember getting on the radio and um, calling to uh, the medic. And I was like, hey, this is, you know, this is Zach. I've been hit. And he came up and went to work. I had three guys. Um, one one PJ and two army medics that were working on me. So, uh, you know, I was, I was in very good hands. Were you able to and, get off the uh, battlefield under your own power? No, okay. no, I, I was put on a stretcher. Were you airlifted out or they, you guys carried you out? Yep. Yep. So I was okay. airlifted, um, just used the birds that we came in on, um, went back to, uh, the base that we were stationed at. Um, you awake the whole time? Was, yeah, I wake the whole time. I had two fentanyl lollipops in. I remember like getting off, being met by because um, it was a coalition base, and there was like some Germans and stuff that were there. And um, yeah, I just remember like getting back into like the operating room or the receiving room, and you know, I'm like, "Hey, you guys gotta give me some better stuff. This hurts." <laughs> They're like, "Yep, the good stuff's coming, buddy. Just hold on." And then they put the mask on and they said, "Count backwards from 10. And I remember saying 10, 9, and then. Out. out yeah it's great how that stuff works huh um yeah when do you learn the extent of your injury uh so they did like a little bit of an exploratory surgery there um just to kind of see what was going on they um mentioned so i i mean to be honest that whole first week where it was almost a week that i was still in country before i met back to afghanistan and it's very very blurry for me so uh when when I ended up getting to Longshore, Germany, um, that's kind of where they had said something about you know the nerve damage. But I mean, I was on a lot a lot of drugs, and uh, it didn't it definitely didn't set in um, how significant this was. 
until I got to Walter Reed and there they did a cadaver nerve graft. So there's actually um, three of us at the same time. We were all part of a case study, um, all had severed static nerves. Um, I think mine was like an eight centimeter um, a section that they had to put back together. So, I mean, a significant portion of my sciatic nerve, which if you don't know, your sciatic nerve is about the uh, diameter of your big thumb or your thumb. So, uh, you know, it's a huge nerve and it just controls a lot of, uh, of everything in your lower body. Your leg. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So they do the graft and I saw a major reduction in the nerve pain, but, uh, I didn't, I didn't recover anything in terms of, uh, in terms of function. When do you realize that this is about to end your career? So that didn't come along until later. There was a lot of hope for me. Um, I spent the next year in a wheelchair because my femoral neck wouldn't heal. Like I had a non-union fracture and it just took a very long time for that thing to heal. And I didn't want to go down the road of a hip replacement, um, you know, with the advice of the med community about, you know, if you're young, you're active, if you get one now, you're going to need multiple in your lifetime. Right. And so, uh, you know, I waited it out for it to heal. Eventually it did. Um, you know, it's, it's not perfect, but you know, I live with some chronic pain from it, but, um, you know, it, it, I think it definitely beats having the hip replacement done at a young age. Eventually I'm going to need one. But as long as I am able to put that off for as long as possible, that's going to be, you know, less of um, future surgeries that I need. So at about the year and a half mark, um, I had gotten fitted for this IDEO device, which is um, an intrepid dynamic exoskeletal orthosis, I believe is what IDEO stands for. But, um, you know, it's a pretty capable device and people are able to run and, and get back to duty wearing this thing. And so I was very optimistic that I could do that. Um, and unfortunately just with the nerve injury that I had, it was too significant. Like I still can't run, um, because, you know, not only did my sciatic nerve get severed, but I also had some gluteal nerves, um, get messed up in, in from the gun shop. And so, you know, I, I can't run. Um, and it was at about the, I guess, two year mark where the med board procedure kind of started. And then the next six months, you know, we're, we're spent going through the med board, um, for medical retirement. Were you angry when they medically retired you? You know, at first I kind of was, but I wasn't going to be happy unless I was doing the job that I signed up to do. Um, you know, I wouldn't have been happy as an instructor. I wanted, I wanted to be on a team. That's the only thing I did for my entire career. And so once I kind of realized that, you know, even if I were somehow be able to overcome like whatever challenges that I have, um, it's not going to be without limitations. Like I'm always going to be wearing this device and you're going to, I, I was going to be a detriment to whatever team that I was on, uh, rather than, you know, being, um, being able to perform maximally for them. So at first I was angry. And then, uh, then once I kind of accepted it, it was, you know, what do I do now? And so then I, you know, I spent two years, over two years in intense rehab and physical therapy was awesome. And so I was like, Hey, I'm going to go do that. And so once I set myself on a new path and, uh, with a new purpose, um, it helped me overcome like the anger that I initially had. I want to go back to real quick, um, that deployment you talked about in 2009. Um, and when you lost a bunch of guys and a bunch, you know, a bunch of guys sustained, wounds and things of that nature. Cause we kind of glossed over that, but there, there's some, obviously some value in it. Um, when you kind of encapsulate your entire career, um, what's harder to deal with your own injuries or the loss of your fellow brothers? Uh, definitely the loss. Um, you know, I'm able to wake up every morning. Um, I'm able to live life. Um, you know, those guys paid the ultimate sacrifice. Um, you know, there's something in the wounded community where like, no matter how much you sacrifice, there's always someone else who's got it worse than you. And that's so true, except for the guys who are killed in combat. Like 
you know, that they're gone forever. Um, so, you know, like my injuries relatively, yeah, they suck, but relative to what, you know, the guy that walks around with, you know, four amputations, like he's got it a lot worse than I do. Um, so, you know, but when you lose someone, you know, there's family and loved ones that, that are going to miss him. And, you know, he's not able to wake up and drink a cup of coffee and do other things. What, what keeps you up at night uh, about everything? I mean, you know, do you think more about those guys um, or um, sometimes you get swallowed up by your own struggle? Uh, so for a long time, I was definitely swallowed up with my own struggle, um, you know, just right after the injury and, and, you know, that, that was difficult for me. You know, I went down a pretty dark road where, you know, when I was in the wheelchair, I just, I didn't see much purpose. Um, and so I struggled with depression and suicidal ideology. So that was, that was really tough for me. Um, but I, you know, I was able to overcome that and I hope that any other veterans that go through that, that incredibly dark, dark, place in their life that they're able to overcome those challenges as well. And I wish that I had like some magic words to tell them to make that go away. But I think everyone's got to deal with it in their own, in their own way. No, yeah, I agree. I mean, it, it's, uh, we, we've heard that story from several different people on the podcast and, um, whatever people's breaking point is, whatever their epiphany is, whatever their reconciliation point is, is different for everybody. Um, and there's not one set thing that, flips a switch and says, Hey, you know what? This life is worth living. Um, cause if yeah, there was, absolutely. Tr- trust me that that secret would be out there very quickly. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, but, uh, that said, I mean, I, I just wonder when, when you've had the career that you've had and you've been able to accomplish so much and yet you, you, you lose so much on the other end. Um, when you kind of, you know, look back at your time in the military, um, do you focus more on what happened as far as what you lost, not only you personally, but you know, your brothers, or is it, there was a a whole lot of good in my career that kind of outweighs that. Uh, you know, that's, that's tough. Um, I mean, it's a mixed bag, right? It is. It's a mixed bag for sure. Um, you know, yeah, there's high points. There's friends that like, I would never do anything different. I mean, I would redo all those things and live through my experiences again at the drop of a hat. Like I, I mean, I'm, I'm incredibly fortunate to have experienced some of the things that I have, you know, including the bad, um, without the bad, you can't have the good. Um, and, uh, and you, and you won't appreciate the good. Um, so, you know, like I feel sorry for, for the loss of, uh, of those who who've gone, but, you know, they were just like me. They volunteered. They loved what they did. And, uh, you know, if that was my number that got called, um, you know, I was willing to, to put that all on the line, um, just as they were. Where is your Air Force Cross right now? It's in the war room slash mm-hmm. I love me room. Do you, I mean, <laughs> do you ever have to take it out and wear it for speaking engagements or anything like that? No, I don't. Um you know, it's uh, it's on the wall with uh, the rest of my military memorabilia, and you know, it's I it's in my study, and so uh, I see it every day. But I don't I don't generally take a lot of time to reflect on it. Why? Uh, just because I've got I've got other things that are going on now. You know, I've got two kids. I've got uh, I just got accepted into Duke University's Doctor of Physical Therapy program. So uh, I'm going to be starting that in August, and I just finished up school at uh, University of North Carolina Chapel Hill. So, you know, I I stay engaged with uh, with the task at hand. We would be remiss if we did not mention to everybody that you are also a Pat Tillman scholar, one of several we've had here on the podcast. Um, I mean, it was incredible. Um, you know, without without that foundation, you know, there's. There are VA programs um, and there's the GI Bill, obviously, and that covers a lot in terms of um, tuition. But, you know, most people that are non-traditional or older military people have families and, you know, that GI Bill doesn't take that into account. Um, So there's a lot of uh, a lot of additional expenses that you have with child care or paying for babysitters so you can study or, you know, whatever that may be. Um, so with, without the Pat Tillman Foundation and the incredible scholarship that they gave me, um, you know, it would have made my education 
definitely more difficult to to attain. Now, when you kind of go through your day uh, with all the other things that you have going on, how much of your military life is still with you? Uh, a lot. You know, I, I think if you talk to any amputee or, you know, someone someone with a similar injury like mine, um, you know, every day I have to put on that device. And so it's always with me. There's always that reminder. Um, you know, every step that I take with my right leg is, you know, it's painful. Um, so there is, there's a constant reminder of, of, you know, my military service and that injury. But, um, you know, I try and focus on the good things. Um, you know, I was probably the worst high school student ever. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, you know, without the military to show me how good I could be at something, I don't think I would have ever, I mean, I think that there's teachers of mine that would be, um, that would have bet a lot of money against me ever becoming a doctor. (laughs) Right. So, uh, you know, and the military gave me that they were able to make me, make me see what I was capable of. Um, and so I'm, I'm thankful for it. Well, look, I mean, I don't know how to encapsulate, uh, what you've squeezed into 11 years of the military. Uh, it's, it's a ton, uh, and certainly, you know, the Air Force Cross, uh, well, you know, to the outside world, it's the highlight. I know it's just another day in the life for you. But uh, that said, I mean, obviously, along with being a Tillman Scholar, you've accomplished so, so much and, and certainly have uh, uh, left an indelible mark on those around you because of, of what you've done and the lives that you've helped to save. And um, I, I think that in and of itself, um, we probably didn't spend enough time on, you know, there, there are guys who are still alive because of the work you did on the side of that mountain. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's guys that are still alive from, from the team's effort. Um, you know, there was countless heroics, um, that were, that were happening within that, you know, relatively brief period of time. Um, actually Ron Schur was just, uh, had his medal upgraded, um, from a silver star to the medal of honor. Um, so, I mean, it's just an incredible, incredible show of heroics and, and, the power of, uh, of loving your brother and the brotherhood and the bonds of, of combat, um, you know, were just shown immensely that day. How much you still talk to those guys? Uh, so I text with Ron every once in a while. Um, and I, I haven't been in contact with the rest of the team. Well, I mean, again, it's one of those things where uh, if for whatever reason you cross paths with any of those guys, it'd be like a day never went by that you didn't talk. It's just the way it is. Yeah, yeah, I think, uh, you know, that that's true with uh, with so much of, of anyone you meet in the military and serve with. Um, you know, you might not talk for years, but you're able to pick up where you, right where you left off, and that's a, that's a great attribute. Well, on that note, uh, Zach, again, an amazing career. Congratulations on everything you've earned and best of luck with everything going forward. And certainly we can't thank you enough for your honesty, your candor, and and certainly sharing your story with us. Yeah, thank you. Thanks again for having me. It was was great. Zach Reiner, thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. Thanks. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell, and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.